It's good to see that that whole row is taken up by the, the Furrow clan. Why, why don't the Furrow children stand up? I'm going to embarrass the daylights out of you. Yeah. It's good that you guys are all grown up, man. Awesome. And Josiah's girlfriend, you can stand up. And it's good to see Bill and Doris Furrow back there as well. Lynn's mom and dad, welcome, guys. Love to have you. Amen. Tom just reminded me also the young adult group is this Saturday at 7. And where's that at, Tom? Right here? Right here at the church? Young adults, if you're 18 and up, I don't know where young adult stops. I'll let you figure that out. But that's here at the church at 7 o'clock on Saturday. Praise God. If we could have the ushers come forward, we'll take up the tithe and the offering. I really want to encourage you also uh, today, just pray, and uh, really let's bless the Furrow family. As Lynn, he is not a guest speaker. He is family, amen, but uh, he is uh, relocated to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, And but I uh, just want to encourage you to sow into his family and his ministry today in the tithe and offering. So let's just pray and see how the Lord wants us to give in that as well. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for the opportunity to give. We thank you, God, for sending the furrows to us. We love them dearly. And Father, it's just so good to have them back. And I just pray, God, your blessing upon the whole family. God, that you would bless them in their coming and their going. That, Father, you would just reveal your presence in their life more and more, the whole family. Lord, we thank you for them. And Lord, I just pray that you would put it in each person's heart today as we're sowing into their life and ministry that, Lord, you would just prompt our hearts on the area of generosity and how to give to them today, God. So, Lord, I thank you for moving. I thank you for having your way today. I thank you even today as the sharing of the word. Lynn always brings a powerful word. And, Father, I just thank you for that. And I just pray that you would give us ears to hear today what you're speaking to us through Lynn. Lord, he's a mouthpiece of yours. Bless him. And, Lord, we just thank you for this offering. May it further the kingdom of God in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Bless the Lord. We can go ahead and release Flip 180. You guys can be released to go back to your class. If you have a 5th through 7th grade, and they are welcome to go back with our Flip 180 group right now. And uh, I'm going to release. Everybody just give a warm welcome to Lynn Furrow. Guys, let's give him a Amen. Come on up, Lynn. Love you. Can you help me? Yep. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody. And we uh, didn't arrive as early as we wanted to. I was trying to get my wife out of the house. and uh, But we wanted to get here a little early to where we could greet uh, you and uh, it's so good to see so many familiar faces and also some new faces. Um, and so it's good to see everybody. So if we didn't get a hug your neck and shake your hand, uh, we're doing that right now. We love you guys. We love this family. This is our family here um, in Indiana. Uh, as Eric said, we embarked, uh, and since I am a grandpa uh, <laughs> and a patriarch, uh, we did another patriarchal journey. We, we now minister in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And Mike, I get your heart. Thank you. I love you. That was honoring. Um, I'm still processing what that means. I did take three years of French in high school and grand uh, 
in French means fat. Um, so if you were saying he's our fat father, then I get that. Uh, but grand may be, you know, that whatever. I got your heart. I love you. And as Eric said, uh, on a rare occasion now, on a rare occasion, uh, we're able to have all of our family together. And Jonathan is missing. He's uh, at Wheaton. Uh, but it just happened that all things converged this weekend. Elizabeth, that lives in Nashville, she's on search uh, of a car and came up here to try to find a car. Uh, got frustrated yesterday. She thought she could close the deal on one and couldn't. Uh, but I'm glad that it didn't work out. Uh, not necessarily that you didn't get the car, but that you were able to come to Indiana and see your family. And. Uh, David lives in Indianapolis or in Noblesville, but I'm glad to see him. And yes, Josiah has a special friend with him. So Aaron, we're glad to see you here today. And then uh, right now, Karis is in the, the children's church, and she's teaching the children's workers patience. <laughs> patience and perseverance. Um, you know, most kids go to new places and they would be intimidated and bashful and shy as soon as we said that you get to go to a different church today. And she says, I get to meet new friends. <laughs> so <clears throat> she's kind of a, a force of nature. I will say that much. Um, and then my mom and dad are here. It's so good to, to have them. So it's kind of like a reunion for us as a family. So And I rarely get to preach at my kids all at one time. <laughs> so... <laughs> I feel the Lord this morning. Well, I met with Eric for breakfast on uh, Friday morning, and I, I kind of had this word that I was had in my spirit out of the book of Jude. And but as I began to pray, I felt like the Lord shifted the direction I was going to go. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42, Psalms 42. And we're going to read verses, I believe, 1 through 5. But this morning we're going to talk about the troubled soul. The troubled soul. Psalms 42. I'm going to get over there. The psalmist said, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive thong, throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. And Father, we just ask that your word would be ministered to your people in the way that you sent it to us with power and great authority. Lord, we recognize that your word, uh, married and infused with your spirit, has the ability to transform our lives. So change us today, God. 
We've come here to be changed by you. And so let your word uh, be living today to us. Holy Spirit, we just say that without you, we can do absolutely nothing. And so, Holy Spirit, we just ask you to take uh, the word of God and make it real to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to start out this message by asking you the question, who is the most influential person in your life? And if you could think about that for a moment, I want you to carefully think about it, because on the surface, when I ask the question, you think, you'll immediately come up with one or two responses, and you'll start thinking about, well, the obvious answer, God. Um, you may come up with several people that have been significant in your life, and they say, well, this person changed my life. They helped me. But I want us to go a um, little deeper in, in answering that question and say that maybe it's not who we assume it is. And so if you had to answer the question, what would it be? Well, author Paul Tripp, uh, and he's a great uh, prolific writer, and I've, I've started enjoying some of his books. He answered this question, and I agree with him. He says, um, I am quite serious when I say it, and I find myself saying it all, all the time to people. He said, no one is more influential in your life than you. And you would go, no, I don't want it to be me. I want it to be God. Or I want it to be someone that is a friend or someone, uh, just like Mike talked about, spiritual fathers and mothers in God, people that have influenced us. But I don't want to be the most influential person in our life or in my life. But it's true. You, more than likely, are the most influential person in your life. Because no one talks to you more than you do. You are in an unending conversation with yourself. You are talking to yourself all the time. And as you talk to yourself, you're interpreting, organizing, and analyzing what is going on the inside of you and around you all the time. Matter of fact, when you woke up this morning, you were talking to yourself. Come on, raise your hand, be honest. And those of you that didn't raise your hand, get up here to the altar and <laughs> repent for lying, because you need to be up here. When you're going to sleep, some of you were cognizant when you went to bed last night that you were having a conversation. You were the last person that you talked to. Now, you said your prayers, but in that last moment, you said, good night, Lynn. <laughs> what did you do today? <laughs> So when you wake up, when you go to sleep, and then you wish you could turn it off then, but what conversation is going on on the inside of you shows up in your dream life. So some of you didn't even rest well because you were talking to yourself while you should be resting. And I want to tell you, stop it. Stop it right now. You're supposed to be sleeping, but we talk to ourselves even in our sleep. And unfortunately for me as a pastor and a teacher, some of you are talking to yourself while I'm teaching. <laughs> it's going on right now. It's never ending. It's ceaseless. And so Paul Tripp, even though we don't want him to be right, we don't want to be the most influential person in our life. I want God to be the most influential 
but in fact, it's me. However, and this is the challenge that I want to give this morning. However, most of us do not take the time to evaluate and examine the content or even hold what we say to ourselves at a level of accountability. It's like a broadcast. It's like the radio. We keep the radio turned on all the time, and it's playing soundtracks, and it's playing recordings, and we don't stop and say, what did I just say to myself? Just like a song, sometimes music will be going on, and sometimes, I'm going to use my kids as an example, sometimes they'll be listening to music, and they're just listening to that music, and I'll say, wait a minute, what did they say in that song? But most of the conversations that we have, we just allow those soundtracks to play, and we don't evaluate, or most of us don't even take serious what we're saying. And so, it is the thing that influences uh, us more than parents, pastors, teachers, spouses, sorry, Carmen, <laughs> spouses, friends, but even God in his word. And so you have to take time to start listening to what you're saying to yourself. And as you listen to what you're saying to yourself, you immediately can discern the spiritual health of your soul. If you want to know where you're really at, because Christians are, are amazing actors. Most of us should get Academy Awards. We know how to put on a performance. We know how to put on the Christian face. And, the, you know, we can style it and, and be very religious. But really, when you go to bed at night or when you wake up in the morning and you start evaluating and consciously examining what you're saying to yourself. It is in those moments that you know the real state of your spiritual health in your soul. Now, this psalmist serves us today, and I want us to look once again back to the verse. And I want you to see the heading above verse 1, because many of the psalms, it will give you the purpose of why this psalm is written. And some of it was purely for worship. Some of it was purely to be set to music. But if you'll notice what it says, uh, the author of this psalm, he says, I'm going to give it to the director of music, but it is a maskil of the sons of, of Korah. And that Hebrew word means that it was a psalm that was to be put to words. It was to have music. It was to have a music line, a melody line, but it was for teaching and instruction. This man of God was going through an intense spiritual season in his life. He was down. He was depressed. We read the verses. He said, I was a worship leader. He said, I used to be a lead worshiper. He said, I used to go up to the house of God, and I was filled with joy and, and filled with the presence of God in my life. And he says, I am now in a place of dark, deep, depression. I am in a spiritual night. And he said, there are forces arrayed against me. And I hear the voice of the enemy say to me, where is your God? And this man cries out and he says, I long for you, God. I long again for the days in which I'm encountering and experiencing your manifest presence in my life. But those days seem like a distant memory. 
And I'm no longer the, the lead worshiper anymore. I feel like I can't even get my praise on at all. All I have is this taunting voice that screams to my heart and mind and says, where is your God? And so he serves us today. I thank God for this man of God's experience. Because thousands of years later, probably 3,000 years after this man's spiritual winter, he serves us today. I thank God that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write his, his conversation. Because he starts talking to himself. Soul, why are you downcast? Why are you the way you are? Because this is what you used to be, but you're not there anymore. And he says to him, he says, why are you downcast? And so it's very important that this muskill, this teaching, this instruction teach us how to handle spiritual winners. I don't know about you, but I've gone through some spiritual winners. And I've been through some deep valleys. And some valleys are deeper than others, and some winters are longer than others. Did you guys have a nice winter in Indiana? <laughs> I heard reports. <laughs> and most of us, when we get through a winter season and we start feeling the spring break, and you feel the warmth, you think, I can live again. And then maybe it's that you know, transitional period where it'll warm up and then when it drops down, doesn't the bottom drop out when you go, no, God, no. I don't want to experience one more cold day. And then you hear, a, uh, you know, and I know it increases our fate, but we hear the weather broadcaster broadcast that you're going to get that last two inches of snow and everybody starts rebuking him in the name of Jesus, screaming at the television, no, no, you will go north, or we will bless the south, you know. They don't have snow, but some winters are longer than others. And none of us are exempt from a troubled soul. And in those valleys, they require us to dig a deeper well of trust in our journey with God. In this psalm, we immediately become aware that this man is in deep distress. And if you follow and go through the whole uh, chapter of verse 42, in 5, 6, and 11, he identifies his soul as being downcast or depressed. He says this, he says, I wasn't prepared for this season. I didn't think that I would end up in this season of my life where I am today. I think he is kind of perplexed and bewildered from the way he used to be and the, the authority that God had given. This guy, again, was a lead worshiper. He was a leader in the house of God. And what he's doing, he's kind of asking the question, but you can tell he's perplexed. How at this stage of my spiritual life have I arrived to such a place? But if we're not careful to evaluate our soul, and that's why this muskill is instruction for us, this man fights back. He's in the winter, but he begins to fight back, and he starts to ask himself the right questions. So instead of just listening to his soul, listening to this conversation, he starts talking to himself, 
Instead of just listening, he starts fighting back and starts talking. And that's where the winter can end in our life. But if we don't understand our spiritual health, we're going to be left vulnerable to temptations and sins. Most of us get into spiritual failure when we don't know how to manage our spiritual winners. Most people uh, get into moral failures. They end up making wrong decisions in the midst of these dark periods of time. Many of us go through prophetic tests where, just like Joseph, it said the word of the Lord tried him. This guy had a destiny. There were words of the Lord over his life. And, and, and in that time where God was giving him visions and he was so excited, then it seemed like everything that God had shown him, the exact opposite happened. And you know the story of Joseph. He ended up in the pit. Then he ended up in prison. Then he ended up being forgotten. There were all these prophetic tests that he went through. And in Psalms, it said the word of the Lord was trying him. And so there are prophetic tests that we go through. And the, and the purpose of prophetic tests is God is trying to qualify you for what he has prophesied over you. Because some of us, we get the revelation, but we don't have the foundation of the character that will allow us to walk in that authority. And so we get this manifestation of our life, a vision and words of the Lord. And God says, that's what I have for you, but you're not ready for it yet. And I'm going to walk you through some narrow times to build you and to deepen you as a person. Some of us feel like we've been forgotten by God. I was preaching a few weeks ago about John the Baptist and I said, I want you to put yourself in his place. Can you imagine you're the one that God shows the identity of Jesus to you, his spiritual identity, and, he, and nobody else is saying it, but he's declaring, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In that one sentence, behold the Lamb of God, there is a revelation of Old Testament foundation, types and shadows uh, of the sacrificial system of the, all the lambs that were slain for, ato for atonement and sin, and he gets it. God has provided himself a lamb that will atone for the sins of the entire world. He gets it. He's, he's filled with revelation. He has revelatory understanding. And he declares it boldly. He said, he's the Lamb of God. And behold, he's going to take away the sins of the world. And so this guy, people are being saved and people are repenting. They are having revival. Unprecedented revival. And you think that after Jesus' ministry begins to emerge, he's comfortable with going to a secondary role. But I think in his heart and mind, he was saying, I want to be with Jesus. I want to be one of his disciples. I want to follow him. I understand who you are. I'm comfortable with preparing the way. I don't think that he thought he was going to end up in prison. And so in this dark period where he's in imprisonment he then has some of his friends that had been in his ministry and he asked him he said would you go tell Jesus and ask him this question are you the one or do we look for another and you go John how do you even ask a question like that are you the one you're the one the first one that said he was the one what are you talking about are you the one the point is that sometimes we forget in the darkness what we saw in the light. 
And many of us say, we will never forget what God has shown us. We will never forget what the Lord has revealed to us. We will never forget this moment. But then when we get into our dungeon, sometimes we experience the test where we feel like God has forgotten us. And Jesus went back and he told his his disciples, he said, you guys wait right here. I want to show you a few things. And it said Jesus began to heal the sick and cast out demons. And then he says, now, you see what you just saw? He said, now you go tell that man of God that is in a deep pit that he is not forgotten. You tell him the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, that demons are cast out. And you go tell him what you've observed. And I believe that when they returned and told him the level of anointing and ministry and the signs and wonders that were accompanying the signs of the Son of God, I believe that was a strength to him. But then Jesus went on to affirm the significance of this man's role in the kingdom. He said, you guys didn't come out in the desert to see some little reed blow in the desert. He said, I tell you what you came out to see. You came out to see a prophet, and he was a prophet indeed. He said, but more than a prophet, there was no man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. And he said, I want you to know who he was and the role that he served. But sometimes we go through the test of where we feel like we're forgotten. God's put us on a shelf. We used to be used of God, but we're not there anymore, and we begin to forget what he's shown us. Then we also have test of correction. I want to remind you of Cain. He goes in there, him and Abel, and God has prescribed a way in which he's going to be approached after the fall. Cain uh, sacrifices one of the flock. God approves it, endorses it. It was blood sacrifice. And it said Cain offered the, the fruit of his own labor, his own sweat. He offered his produce. And God said, no, I'm not going to accept that. This is not about me accepting your self-effort and the sweat of your brow and the things that out of performance you will produce. It requires a sacrifice of something that is laying its life down. I will not accept works for salvation. I will accept blood sacrifice because it's a type of a greater sacrifice to come. And so God tries to correct him. And many times in our life, we think that we're doing everything right. And really, we're very immature people. And we're trying to do things for God, accomplish things for God, and it doesn't have the success, the results of what we thought it would be. And then we begin to get disappointed. And we go, God, what's wrong with what I'm doing? Why don't you approve this person? You prove what they're doing. They have tremendous blessing, favorite success, and I've worked real hard. And where is the blessing on what I'm doing? And God may come to us and try to correct us and say, well, I appreciate your effort, but that's not what I want. I don't want your efforts. I want your faith. I want you to trust me. I want you to rely upon the prescription that I've given you for my word. I want you to listen to my instructions. Don't just come up with your vision and say, God, I want you to bless this. I want you to come to me in the way that I prescribe. And sometimes we get bitter against God. I know there's nobody in the house that's ever angry at God. God, why hasn't this worked out the way that I thought it was going to work out? We go through the test of correction. And then there's that test of betrayal. And most of the time, the reason why betrayal hurts so bad is because we're betrayed by people that we love and that we trust and that we considered friends. I think probably 
All of you have gone through all four of those tests, the prophetic test, the forgotten test, the test of correction, and the test of betrayal. And if you haven't, I want to say this, they're on the way. Because I wish you could say that God doesn't give these tests, but only to a select few. No, these tests are common to everybody. And all of us are going to experience. And I've said this, you're beginning a test in the middle or finishing one to get ready for the next one. But in these times of spiritual darkness, we've got to be careful lest the enemy, like he did with Cain, crouch at our door and lead us into a place of sin. And so the psalmist is saying, listen, I'm going through this test and God is showing me that he wants to use my life as an example Because there are other people that are going to come after me that are also going to go through dark periods. And I want them to know they're not alone. And he's saying, allow me to help you in your time of test and depression. Now, there are two reasons why he says this valley was so dark. And the first one, he says, in the valley, in the darkness, is the absence of God's presence. And, and the ancients used to call it the dark night of the soul. Some of you are saying, Lynn, we haven't seen you in a year, and you come and share this depressing word. We were hoping that we... I believe I'm going to help some people this morning. Because I could share something that maybe would make us uh, feel excited emotionally, but it won't help you navigate through the waters that you're in now. So this is not about just making you feel good today. I want to give you something that will connect the Sunday to the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday and the Thursday. And so as that spirit comes to your mind on Thursday and says, where is your God? You'll be able to have an answer to that soundtrack. Again, this man feels like there's an absence of God. And whenever we feel like the absence of God, there is a leap in which the enemy wants us to take in our mind and our thinking. He wants to make us feel that God truly has abandoned us. Somehow God has given up on you. The absence of his manifest presence, the enemy wants you to conclude that truly God has abandoned and given up on you. That God is not there. He is not going to intervene. He is not in your future. He may have been involved in your past, but obviously the lie is He wants you to take the jump that God is not going to be in your present or in your future. Many from church history can encourage us during seasons of spiritual winter. I think we have this uh, illusion that men and women of God in the past, you know, they're too great to deal with things like this. I tell you, the higher you go up on the mountain of the Lord, the deeper the valleys the more I find that people that have experienced great things in God, the more vulnerable they are to the temptation of depression. Charles Spurgeon, known in the mid-1800s as the Prince of Preacher, this guy pastored a megachurch when there were not megachurches. He had a congregation of over 10,000 people in London. 
It was amazing what God did there. And this young man started preaching in this church that they sent him to because nobody else wanted to go to it. It was in the heart of, of London in the Victorian period of time where extreme pollution and dirt, it was where people would open up their windows and they would throw out their chamber pots in the middle of the street. It smelled like the stench of, of urine and... and uh, you know, just dung and, and filth and dirt. I'm trying to create a picture. Do you smell it this morning? <laughs> London in the 1850s, it, it was not roses and perfume. It was dark. It was dingy. It was dirty. Open sewers running the streets. And here was this small congregation of literally elderly saints. And everybody was, again, just what happens here in our communities. They were moving more to the suburbs of London. And this 19-year-old young man went in there and preached the Word of God. And they sensed an anointing upon him, and they asked him to become their pastor. And this young man began to grow. And as he began to grow, the church began to grow. And in the very heart of London, this man turned this church into a place that impacted the very heart of London itself. But this man of God, who was known to preach messages that were so penetrating that the altars were filled Sunday after Sunday, they said that he would preach over an hour each Sunday. And they said that people would stand outside in lines waiting for the next service because they wanted to hear this young man preach the word of God with authority and anointing. But in 1958, he said this, after a lengthy period of dark depression, he said, my spirit was sunken so low that I would weep for hours in the dark like a child. I knew not what I wept for, but this gloom was like an iron bolt that mysteriously fastened the door of hope and had a hold on my soul. I felt like I was in a gloomy prison and I desperately needed a heavenly hand to push it back. Now, that was a man of God that probably in the midst of that dark prison, where he felt like the door of hope was shut, was probably still on Sunday mornings getting up and preaching the Word of God. He was probably still caring for the sick. He probably was still doing the ministry, but no one knew the pain in his soul. Spurgeon went on to preach. A message trying to encourage Christians that suffer from depression. He says, I tell you young Christians that the most experienced believers, men and women of God who have great doctrinal knowledge and much experiential wisdom, men and women who have walked and lived close to God for years and have the most, at times, the most intimate of fellowship, have their winters. I love this one example, and I, I love it the most because it's the most humorous. Martin Luther, the father or grandfather of the Reformation, whichever one you want to, <laughs> however you want to state it, Mike. But this man took a, a mighty stand for the gospel. And uh, great turmoil broke out after his mighty stand for the gospel because the Reformation wasn't without a mess. It was messy. A lot of people died. There was conflict. And uh, it, it shook the entire continent of Europe. 
And Luther was prone, prone to periods of depression. This man who said, who got a revelation, reclaimed the uh, doctrine of justification by faith, that the just shall live by faith alone, that we're saved by grace. And he started preaching that. But this man was prone to periods of depression. And they said that after he got married, they said that he went into one of these periods and seasons of depression, and his wife Catherine noticed that he started sleeping later and later and later in the day. Didn't want to even get up and face the day. Come on, I'm preaching to some of you here. And she noticed that he was just starting to stay and hibernate more and more, trying to escape the emotions of the discouragement that he felt. And he got up one morning, and they said Catherine was dressed from head to toe in black. And she had a mourner's garment on. And he got up, and he said, Catherine, he said, has someone died in the church? And she said, well, apparently, Martin, God has died, and I'm in mourning for him. Did you hear what she said? She said that what she spoke to Martin Luther kind of shook him out of his doldrums because she said, Martin, you've been acting like God has died, like the promises of God that we have stood on, that those promises are no longer valid. She said, I am in mourning because God has died. And even though we know that was not true, but in his life, he was acting as if God no longer existed. And that's what depression will do to you. Now, how do we get out of it? Well, we've got to stop listening to ourselves, and we've got to start talking to ourselves. We've got to interrupt the ceaseless soundtrack. And that's what the psalmist did in verse 5 and 11. He said, he started interrogating his soul. Instead of just listening to why God was not doing what he was doing, or why he was not doing in his present what he had done in the past, he starts asking his soul, and he starts saying, I want you to give me the reason of why you're downcast. Why are you depressed? Let's get to the bottom of why you're listening to all this negative talk in your mind. I want to give you a resource that I believe will be an encouragement. If you suffer from depression and, and, and seasons of spiritual depression, everybody's going to get, you need to get out a piece of paper and write this down because everybody go. Well, no, I, I'm not going to show anybody that I have this. I want you to get the little book by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression. It is a jewel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the book Spiritual Depression. It is a jewel and a gift of God to help the people of God navigate seasons of darkness. And in that book, he said, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. He didn't say all, but he said most unhappiness. If you're unhappy this morning, most of the time, it's because you've failed to go on the offensive and to talk to your soul. You've been listening too much to yourself. You need to start talking to yourself. It is a neglected skill. It's a neglected discipline. But it has the potential of making a substantial difference in your life. 
And, and you go, well, I don't know if that's true. Well, you partner up with some friend in the body of Christ. You partner up with some brother or sister, and you sit down with them for coffee and lunch, and they start interrogating your soul, and they start washing you with the water of the Word, and you start feeling that oppression breaking off your life. And sometimes what we do is we go, man, I need to talk to them more. Well, that's true. We need to communicate to each other more. But sometimes you don't have that friend in the moment that you need it. So develop the discipline of you learning to talk to yourself. Be your own life coach. We really have two choices. Either listening to our distraught soul, regulated by our unstable emotions, our faulty perceptions based on changing circumstance, or I have the opportunity of preaching the gospel to my soul again today. And in this, in this chapter, he doesn't only interrogate his soul of saying, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? But then he starts preaching the gospel to his soul. And he said, why are you downcast? I want you to give me the bottom reason of why you're mad at God. I want you to give me the bottom, bottom reason of why you've given up on him. I want to interrogate you and let's get to the bottom of this. But then he goes, let me tell you something, soul. Have hope in God. And sometimes the soul is resistive. It is stubborn to instruction. And that's why I encourage you, if you read Psalms 42, the conflict didn't end there. It bleeds over into chapter 43 and chapter 44 and chapter 45. This man is in a war with a stubborn soul that says, I'm depressed and I'm enjoying being here and I'm going to stay here. And he starts asking the questions of why you're depressed, but I'm going to also give you the answer. Have hope in God. He shifts the focus and the content of the conversation. He was not going to let his mind or his emotions be the interpreter of his present. Circumstances lie to us all the time. They will tell us God is not good, God is not wise, that God has abandoned us, that God doesn't do what he used to do, and that God has forsakenness and each one of those is a lie and I'm going to preach the gospel to me and to you today God is good God is all wise God is all knowing and he said I will never leave you nor forsake you I will be with you to the very end of time and so I want you to look at this in verse 4 he goes why am I downcast in verse 4 he begins to pivot his perspective he says okay soul I'm going to begin to remember. Remembrance is a powerful thing. Because if you only see darkness in your present and darkness in your future, you've got to go back and light up the path of the past. Sometimes what we do is we, we are so much talking about, you know, forgetting our past because of some of the bad stuff that happened there. But if you've walked with God for any period of time, there are some things that are in my past that are very good. There are mile markers. There are miracles. There are moments in which God broke into my life. When I called upon the Lord, He heard my cry. And I begin to have to light up the lamps of those light posts of my past, and I begin to allow them to shine back upon my history in God. Yeah. 
And I'm here to tell you, I've never, ever seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. I want to tell you to remember the goodness of the Lord. Remember what he has done for you. Remember how he has saved you and redeemed you and forgiven you and saved you from the uttermost. And he says, soul, I want you to begin to remember who you were in God. Remember you used to lead the procession of the festive throng. How you used to worship God in the spirit of his holiness. How you used to be a lead worshiper. That you were the one that was leading the procession. You were the one that was setting an example of what it meant to be a praiser. What it meant to be someone that worshiped and glorified the Lord. Because you were filled with his, his spirit. You were anointed by the Holy Spirit. Remember that day when you took the lead. <laughs> when you were on the cutting edge. And you knew that God was using you in a way that you had never been used before. Remember that moment in God. He says, I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude and lead the procession. I used to do that. And then in verse 5 he says, so why are you downcast? Why are you disturbed? I'm telling you, man of God, rise up and put your hope in God again. Now let me finish by saying this. If we put our hope in God, we're not talking about wishful thinking. It's not a despairing hope, a hope against hope. Despairing hope is a hope against hope. It's outside odds that anything is going to work out. It's not that wishful thinking, well, maybe it's going to work out for me. That's not biblical hope. It's not a vain or an empty hope. When the psalmist preaches the gospel to himself and says, have hope in God, it is a hope that's in informed by the character of God. It's informed by the faithfulness of God, by the loving kindness of God that we've experienced in our past. And as he says to his soul, put your hope in God, he's saying, I want you to start looking for divine interventions. Just like the ones that you experienced in the past when you thought that the door was closed, and you knew because that door was closed, there was no other door. You were so narrow in your perspective, you thought that if this door closes, there's no other door that exists in the universe. <laughs> it's amazing how we think our circumstances define reality, right? Oh, this door closed, and I was so hopeful that that would be the one that would lead to breakthrough into my destiny and my future. And now this door is closed. Therefore, if this door is closed, I have no hope. As if God can't create a million doors. <laughs> how about a billion doors? How about a, how about a trillion possibilities in your life? And just when I thought that door is closed, all hope is lost. But then I held on to hope. There is an anchor, the Bible says, that proceeds through the veil. And it's a tether that is attached to the throne of God. And that lifeline of hope comes all the way down and connects to each one of our hearts. 
And what God is saying in the book of Hebrews when he talks about the line of hope, that, that tether of hope that's anchored to the throne of God. God says there's hope for you as long as my throne endures. There's hope for you. Boy, I'm preaching better than your amen. And me. God says, as surely as I live, says the Lord. You know, when God makes a promise and he swears by the existence of his eternal life, you can take that promise to the bank. And so today, there's a tether that I'm hooked to in my heart where he says, I can have hope. You can have hope, Lynn. You can have hope. And I want you to remember what I've done for you in the past. And in the moment where you thought all hope was gone, every door closed, God, I remember when I called to you that you opened the way where there seemed to be no way. And so we say, thank you, my brother. I had one. Let me drink out of this one. It's a little warm. Thank you, Jesse, for thinking of me. The answer is still no. <laughs> just, just kidding. <clears throat> Not to get sidetracked, we enjoy the Christian comedian. What's his name? Tim Hawkins. You guys watch Tim Hawkins' latest one. He talks about the creative ways that parents can say no to their children. And so I watched that segment, and I mean, it really educated me as a parent that I can be empowered to say no and say it in creative ways. So it's become such a joke with Jesse and Josh that when they come to me to ask me anything, they'll say, Dad, I was wondering, I'll just go, no. <laughs> and then I'll go, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's okay. He says it's okay. But they know, really, I'm a pushover. If they're, you know, if they just keep pushing, 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 they know I cave to them. So my no is actually just no for a moment because they'll eventually squeeze out the yes. This morning, I want to finish by saying, can you remember what God has done for you in the past? They always say history repeats itself in our lives, and it does. So, God is going to answer your cry. Some of you are saying, God, do you hear me? Oh, he not only hears you, but more than likely the answer is already on the way. You, in the future, are going to taste of the Lord and say, oh, God, you're so good. Tell you this morning. Why? Why can you so confidently say that? Because Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. So I am I'm full throttle rolling into my future, and it's scary out there. There are a lot of dark things out there. But I'm I'm not putting on the brake. And I'm not trying to downshift. I'm saying full speed ahead. Because soul, you have hope in God. And the very God that provided your need when you thought there was no way that the need would be met. I'm telling you. If you're not careful, I'm going to start testifying. I will go from preaching to testifying. 
I've had, I've had multiple times where financially, can I tell you just one? I may have even shared it here a couple years ago because we were going through a financial transition. We were releasing our finances over to another pastor for the church at Wellspring, and we were on this venture of faith and stuff like that. And we, we had never missed a, car, or a house payment, never, always on time. And we were like two days away from our house payment. And uh, I went and we, we prayed. We said, God, we need you. And it was like the examples that you hear on television by the faith preachers. Because normally, I didn't think that it would be that easy. But I can remember going down to my mailbox. I opened up my mailbox thinking I was going to get junk mail. And I opened it up, and there was an unmarked envelope. I opened it up. We needed $500 to make our house payment. I opened up that envelope, and guess what was in that envelope? Five $100 bills. Now, my little widow neighbor that loved to do yard work, she was a widow. She was outside. This is what Lynn Furrow did right alongside the road, right by. Because, you know, when, when you're going through this, there's that taunting voice that says, he won't do it this time. This time it's different. His promises are not going to be true because you're the exception. And he wants to make it all about you. That somehow you've done something where God cannot hear or answer you. And so when I opened that up and I realized, once again, God, in the 11th hour, I still don't know who dropped that envelope off. No one knew our need. We had not said a word to anybody. And I dropped down on my knees beside my mailbox in the middle of my yard. And I raised my hands to heaven. And I, 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 was, I knew Mary was rolling around in her golf cart in her yard. But in that moment, I was so overwhelmed by God's goodness and His mercy to me and His faithfulness and His loving kindness and the tenderness to me as one of His sons. I dropped to my knees and I said, I'm not going to go up to the house and shout. I'm not going to go and wait till I get in and shut the door. I am going to right now give thanks to God because God has shown me once again that he hears and answers our prayer. And I remember holding up my hands and I think there were a couple of cars that passed by. And I'm just thanking God and thanking God and thanking God and declaring his goodness and his faithfulness. And then I opened my eyes. And I looked at my little widow neighbor, and she was like. (laughs) I mean, I could tell it. She had her eyes were kind of like, what is going on? And I got up, and I said, hi, Mary. (laughs) And I walked out to the house. I think she never fully understood us, did she? (laughs) God is good. So, if you are downcast, turn off that soundtrack that says, where is your God? To the broadcast that says, have hope in God. Let's stand and pray.
I don't know if I told Eric this, but this is another testimony I'll just give you quickly. I know we're reaching that hour of noon where people's spirits turn off. Yeah, or teachers' workers are collapsing right now with exhaustion. So we do want to be sensitive to them. Mostly. We want to be mostly sensitive to them. But there's a lady in our church in Cedar Rapids. And, and uh, without trying to expand on the story, anyway, she's diagnosed with cancer, given her no hope, maxed out the chemotherapy they can give her. No more chemotherapy. And uh, Carmen and I, for a season of a number of weeks, but other people, it wasn't just Carmen and I, we did soaking prayer over her and reading the word over, getting in her worship environment. And, and uh, listen, her son had died of cancer. So, I mean, her ability to believe that God could heal her when she saw her son die of cancer, you could tell there was a lot of mental struggle. But uh, friends had continued to pray for her. And she sent me this little text two weeks ago. And we had heard rumors that she went back to the doctor and had gotten a totally different report than the one she had been receiving. The doctor said, we, you know, we're amazed. Your tumors have shrunk dramatically. And, uh, and again, she had already had as much chemotherapy. She hadn't uh, taken chemotherapy pills in a long time. They said there is a reversal going on in this disease process. And so um, she texted me and she said, she said to me, she said, Pastor Lipton, she said, I think that God is healing my body. And she said, and she used the phrase, she says, I always felt like the woman who had the issue of blood where I spent all my money and it only got worse. She said, but I knew that if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I could be made whole. And she said, I'm getting the, mo the miracle that I've always cried out for. Now, I tell you what. God is still in the business of answering the cries and the prayers of his people. There's a million reasons to hope today. Now, if you are today in a deep place of a spiritual winter and you're in spiritual depression, I want to pray for you today. And they always say that you have an authority to pray for what God has helped you with. Well, I want you to know, I've had some valleys and winters. And I feel like God has given me a measure of authority to pray for people that have gone through tur turmoil of soul. And so today, I just we're going to do this as a corporate thing, and I want to pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of hope, Spirit of hope would blanket the people of God today. And when we say a blanket, that brings such security 
A blanket is a security thing to a child. Holy Spirit, your hope is a security for us about our present and our future. And Father, we ask that right now the Holy Spirit would begin to walk us back through our spiritual history, back through those mile markers of faith and trust that have been forged in many battles and many furnaces and remind us of what we have forgotten. Take us back to the day when you first began to do a work in us to save us and then everything else that has followed. When you filled us with the Spirit, when you delivered us from addiction. God, when you brought to us our spouse and we never thought that we would ever be married or be happy in marriage. God, show us the many, many miracles, many answers to prayer that you have given to us. Show us how you fulfilled words of the Lord in our life that we waited on, but we saw them come to pass. Now, God, we've come to the conclusion if you did it in the past, you're going to do it again. And so right now, I ask that the faith level in this house would raise up and that we would not just look back upon our past in a rearview mirror of saying that was then, but this is now. We believe you, God, in the now, but also in the future. That you are going to be faithful to complete that which you have begun in us. And, And what you start is an indication that you're going to finish. You don't abandon work sites. You don't leave the job. If you started something, there is so much value already embedded on what you've done, what you've invested in our life. Surely, God, you will bring it to pass with a finishing anointing, with shouts of grace, grace, grace over our lives. And so we prophesy over New Covenant and we say grace upon this house and over the families and their their destinies in God and their children and their children's children since we're grandpas we say oh God grace for our present but also for our future God I thank you that you're going to bless us but you're going to bless succeeding generations to come because Our souls have hope in God. And we say then today, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, I will bless His holy name. Bless the Lord. Soul, bless the Lord. We thank you for it, God. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you. All right, we're going to preach ourselves happy this week, aren't we? Amen. Start preaching to yourself. Amen. Well, God bless you. May God be with you this week. Keep in His Word and keep His presence close. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.